I get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you're getting all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Seasons 6 and 7 and Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone, along with any other projects our favorite actors might be up to. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 405 Savages. is up outlander nation i am so excited to be bringing you a new episode of the sassanac files today i have no idea why but i really just wanted to open this episode saying hola tanneritos <laughs> i haven't even watched full house lately so that's hilarious if you haven't watched full house and you ever need like 90s sitcom total cheese fest full house will just make your heart happy I promise so um there's my plug for one of my favorite tv shows of all time full house guys full house so today we're talking 405 savages and I am bright-eyed and bushy-tailed guys I got off of my overnight third shift and it's like daylight outside how exciting is that so bringing you this episode from the midwest where it is like skin meltingly hot and humid like you literally feel like every ounce of moisture is being pulled out of your pores every time you step outside which is super pleasant but hey that's July for you here in Indiana so I am enjoying this episode from the comfort of my lovely air-conditioned house and just thinking about how miserable it must have been in the 18th century when pioneers had cabins that really didn't do any good to protect you from the elements and it was just obviously freezing cold for most of this episode so I really felt bad for the actors which for those of you that may be new to the Outlander universe or haven't really investigated into it the Scottish weather is one of the reasons that Outlander tries to film at particular times during the year because season four was filmed over the course of a winter And they're really trying not to do that to their actors again, because logistically, it just made everything difficult. There would be snow in part of a scene. And then four hours later, they're still filming the same scene. And there is no snow. They're dealing with sub-zero temperatures. It was just pretty much a miserable experience. So season five was filmed in the summer into the fall. And I think that was much better for them. And they tried to do the same thing with season six. But then, you know, pandemic. They ended up having to film January through June, so I'm sure that was unpleasant, but they got through it, and now I believe that filming for season seven is supposed to start in March of 2022. Again, they're trying to avoid the harsh filming conditions of a winter in Scotland because logistically it just makes everything more difficult, and when you're trying to pass off February in Scotland as May in North Carolina, it's not exactly the easiest thing to do. Um, Getting back to this episode, a few things that I kind of just want to break the ice with. There were a couple of little things 
that I really did kind of enjoy about this episode. And the first one, the primary one, was just kind of getting a glimpse at what life is like on Fraser's Ridge. A lot of time has passed for Jamie and Claire's side of the timeline since we last saw them in 404. They are completely established. Their cabin is built and fully furnished. They even have glass in their windows, which if you guys are book readers, you know that glass takes a long time to acquire and it's very expensive. So when they're building all of these new structures, they always have like canvas flaps over the windows for a prolonged period of time because it's just difficult to afford glass and then find glass to put in these windows. So clearly, whenever we see Jamie and Claire at the beginning of this episode, it has been quite a bit since we last saw them with just bare bones of a structure and Jamie walking Claire over the threshold and talking about what he wanted this cabin to be. And now here it is. And it's really beautiful to see, but also kind of made me think back as to how I've been looking at this whole thing, because I always took season four as to be a parallel timeline between Jamie and Claire and Brie and Roger in that it was basically in space the same amount of time had passed. We were just seeing Brie and Roger in the 20th century and Jamie and Claire in the 18th century, whereas actually it's probably been more so time passing at a measured pace for Brie and Roger, but time not passing as quickly for Jamie and Claire. Because when I'm thinking about this, as we progress over the course of the next couple of episodes, a lot of time passes for Brie and Roger in a short amount of episodes. And then Jamie and Claire are kind of stagnant. They would have to be for Brie and Roger to catch up to them in Wilmington. Spoiler alert. Sorry if you guys are watching with me and you haven't got that far yet. So yeah, there is a bit of a discrepancy there. But overall, um, noticing that time jump is kind of key to where we're at in this episode because Jamie and Claire are established enough that people in the surrounding area look to Claire as their healer. The Mueller's are of key importance in this episode, clearly. And it would take a minute for people, for word of mouth to spread that Claire was a healer and she was capable of delivering a baby or curing the sick. That amount of time has passed to where people would know who she is and where to find her. But overall, just life on the ridge, seeing how simple things were back then. I mean, don't get me wrong. They were still, it was a hard life, but it was very much immediate needs first and only. You fed the animals because if you didn't feed the animals, you didn't have anything to eat. If you didn't have anything to eat, you starved. So it was chopping wood and drying herbs and making medicines and preserving food and building new outbuildings, things like this. It made me kind of yearn for that because life today is so complex, whereas it was very much just making a living back then, whereas today it's, oh, I got to get up two hours early so I can drive through rush hour traffic to get to work. You know, it's really just a pain in the ass. And I really do kind of long for simpler times. Growing up in Indiana, I grew up in a rural area and I kind of had the luxury of not growing up in a city environment. I mean, I'm not far from a major city. I'm, I'm about an hour outside of Indianapolis. But what I consider a major city, like, guys, I didn't see Chicago until I was like 13. And I didn't see New York until I was 21. So yeah, and I saw LA when I was 
24, 25? 24. And then I saw London when I was 25. Granted, that's more than a lot of people in my area ever see. It's not uncommon for people in where I live to never see anything bigger than Indianapolis. In fact, one of my cousins didn't see Indianapolis until he was 15 or 16, which I just found like incredible. I mean, not to say it's a bad thing, because that's kind of the whole point of what I'm getting at. Like, I grew up in a rural area, and I can appreciate the smaller things in life. And I like to take things slow. My grandparents had a huge garden when I was little, and we used to put up all of our own food and stores. And so I kind of long for that because we don't do that anymore. My brother and sister-in-law have just started a garden and I have a raised bed and I've planted some black raspberries. So I'm excited to start to make preserves and frozen stuff that we can eat throughout the winter because having fresh fruit is one of the best things ever, in my opinion, in the winter months whenever you're just kind of starved for good quality of anything. So I really appreciated that little, the little scene with Jamie and Claire, not to get off on a tangent or anything, but it just made me nostalgic, I guess. Kind of continuing with life on the ridge. One other thing that I did notice was in the last episode, Ian promised Claire that when he got his hands on a skein of wool, he would teach Claire how to knit. And in this episode, we see Claire knitting multiple times. And I just found that hilarious and I loved it at the same time like I could just picture Ian teaching Claire how to knit it's adorable and then kind of closing out on the whole like domestic bliss section of this episode maybe I'll just call it that my domestic bliss section since I always seem to pick out those moments and make sure to talk about them in these podcasts is the scene at the very beginning whenever Jamie is helping Claire get ready for her journey over to the Mueller's and helping her pack up her supplies. He's looking for his hat. He says, Sassanac, have you seen my hat? And she says, well, where was the last place you saw it? And he was like, if I can't that, I'd be wearing it. Just I love the dynamic between these two and some of these early season four scenes. Clearly very comfortable with each other again. They kind of dance around each other in the kitchen, always very oriented as to where the other is. She's like, can you get me the jerky? And he says, sure, because it's on the top shelf and he's taller than her. Isn't that adorable? And then he's trying to, you know, be sly about the fact that he's going to take this candlestick off the mantle and he doesn't want her to know. I just found it all absolutely adorable. And to top the whole thing off, when he helps her put on her shawl, It's so cute. It just makes my heart melt, guys. And he's offering to come back early if she gets home early so that she doesn't have to stay by herself. He doesn't want to leave her. That's still something that is tightly ingrained in him from all of those years of separation. He just doesn't want to be apart from her at all. And he hates the idea of her having to be there by herself, which is very clearly justified in him feeling that way because of what happens later on in this episode. Uh, So kind of a foreshadowing there, which is really dark. And I don't know that a lot of people pick that up. In fact, I didn't really pick it up until I was just talking about it. So that's interesting. (laughs) Uh, It's actually amazing, guys, how much I put together as I'm sitting here talking to you. Like, 
from a lot of the things that I say, you would think that my notes are a lot more thorough than they are. And in fact, no, it's just me coming to realization as I'm. So, yes, I love the scene between Jamie and Claire, but I think the big takeaway from that moment is when he's kind of just staring at Claire and then he says, does Brianna have a birthmark on her neck? And Claire looks at him and she's kind of just thunderstruck. She's like, yes, she does. I don't ever remember telling you about it, though. And then he describes it in perfect detail. He says it's a wee brown mark, diamond shaped, just behind her left ear. And Claire is just like, oh, my God, like, what? How do you know that? And he says he saw it in a dream that he had. This is kind of the first inkling of us knowing that Jamie has some otherworldly powers not necessarily powers i guess that's an odd term to use but he does have some supernatural abilities he's not able to time travel but he does have these very lifelike dreams where it appears that he does travel through the veil of space and time at least in a spiritual form of some sort and he can see his daughter he can see claire he has dreams like this throughout the series and i just find it very interesting we should mind you, should in the next season or two get some good glimpses of what these abilities look like. I really hope that they actually show us versus him telling. That would be fantastic. So we do have that to look forward to, I think, and I hope, fingers crossed. But I do find it interesting that this is kind of something that Diana has built into his character. Also, that This was one of the moments that really just brought tears to my eyes because he whispers to Claire, I kissed her there. In his eyes, you can just see how much he loves this girl that he has never met. Just absolutely unequivocally would lay down his life for her unquestioningly, even though he's never met her because it's his daughter. And he does have that bond with her, even if they've never met. And secondly, that he misses her you know? And he longs for that time that they never got to have together. It makes me emotional because we see that emotion. And I know that Sam really wanted to put that into his performance, how much he longs to know her, even though he never will. I felt all of that in this scene, and I thought he did a great job with that. So on to the big ticket items of this episode. The first thing I want to touch on is the relationship or lack thereof, between the natives and the Mueller's. I love how they set this up, the showrunners and the writers. Claire goes to see this family that is living out in the wilderness, much like her and Jamie, and the young girl, Petronella, is about to give birth. So we pick up with, just after the birth, they really just seem like the sweetest family, especially Petronella and Frau Mueller. The young girl says, doesn't she look like her father in German? And they kind of agree to that. And then she says, God rest his soul. And the look on Claire's face, I really felt in that moment that she was having two different sides of the same emotion. So first off, she is seeing this young girl who's roughly the same age as Brie and she's had a child and she's thinking about how she won't be there for Brie when Brie has her first child. So I think that is the first side to that emotion. And we can see that further illustrated when Frau Muller stands up and says, well, do you have a grandchild, Frau Clara? And she says, no, not yet. And she says, well, then you can share mine. 
which, oh my god, this woman is so sweet, guys. Oh, man. Anyway, so that's the first side. And then the second side, I think, is seeing herself in this girl. Not just seeing Brianna and where she could be at her stage in her life, but seeing herself in Petronella. Because here we have a young girl who's just given birth to her baby daughter who looks like her recently deceased father. And Claire knows exactly how Petronella is feeling because this is exactly what she went through when she had Brie. So I know that that's what Claire is going through in that moment, just seeing Petronella through the veil of her own life experience. And that must be a really tough thing for her to think about. The empathy radiating off of Claire is just, it comes in waves. So this family looks perfectly sweet, even when Claire goes out on the porch and is like, Ah, Mila, you know, come meet your new granddaughter. And he is like, thank you so much. And you're always welcome here. Perfectly nice. And then when the Native Americans show up, it's like a switch has flipped instantaneously he becomes this nasty man it really makes me sad it just makes me so sad because it's the mistrust and the fear of a different culture of people with different beliefs you know there's stories going around about these people that just burn down houses and whatever we see the fruition of that like we see where these stories come from at the end of this episode but Look at what the Mueller's did to deserve that. I personally think that the Native Americans were justified in how they behaved, but the irony of the fact that it's the innocents that paid first for the aggression of others. Adewehi was killed by her Mueller because she was a witch, in his opinion, and she had cursed his family to die of the measles. They can't curse other people if there's no witch. It's a very ignorant way of living, and I think Jamie meant it kind of humorously, but in that first scene with Claire, he was like, well, he was talking about Gerhard Mueller and how he didn't know if he envied Claire or not because Mistress Mueller was a good cook, but Gerhard, you know, to tolerate him, basically Clarence is less stubborn and makes more sense. So even Jamie sees it. He sees the potential um, for aggression and violence in this guy and that he's not open to listening to the opinions and views of others necessarily to kind of see it all come full circle and to see what that inability to see from a different person's perspective gets him in the long run. It doesn't get him anything. And in fact, it gets his wife killed because he feels that he has to retaliate for Something that didn't happen. He believes that the Native Americans cursed his land and cursed his family when in reality they were blessing the water because that's how the Native Americans live and that's that's their culture to bless nature for what it gives them in the hopes that it will keep on providing those things. So to see the Mueller's not understand that at all and to really make things worse for themselves because of their ignorance, it really is is sad, quite frankly. Which bears the question, I mean, this episode is titled Savages, but who's the savage? I mean, obviously, Native Americans were referred to as savages quite often in the 18th and 19th century. 
for reasons I can't even fathom. I mean, yes, there was violence, but most of it was instigated by the actions of the settlers that lived around them. I don't think that Native Americans, some tribes or most tribes of Native Americans are prone to violence like they were said to be. I think that they did it to protect their people or in retaliation for a wrong that was done to them. And I can't say I blame them for that. Burning down the Mueller's cabin. I mean, yes, I'm sure that having their cabin burnt down or having your entire family scalped, that's what the Mueller's are afraid of. And that's what a lot of settlers are afraid of. But to think that no one will understand why the natives acted the way that they did, why the Cherokee made the decision to kill Mr. and Mrs. Mueller and burn down their house. That's not going to be the story that is told to all the the people of Cross Creek. What they're going to hear is that the natives murdered this family and burnt down their house for the sake of just doing it to do it. And that sucks because all that does is it furthers the divide between the settlers and the Cherokee, when in reality, all they were doing was protecting their own. The second little thing that I wanted to talk about, I know I talked about the first one, and then kind of went into a big ticket item. But the second little thing that I want to talk about is Brie and Roger. Their part in this episode was extremely small, but very impactful because in the last episode, Roger found out that Brie intended to go back to the past to be with her mother and didn't tell Roger. And so Roger was kind of flailing at the end of last episode. He was just kind of cut loose and bobbing in the ocean like a cork, right? No way to control where he was going. And so he's finally got his anchor back and he is on the hunt for Brie. He goes to Inverness and he's kind of searching for her. He's tracked her down to the cab station. The cab station said she booked a one-way fare to Craig Nadoon 10 days ago. So he's officially 10 days behind her, which I mean, he was two weeks behind her. So he's caught up a little bit. So it says that Bree stayed at Baird's Bed and Breakfast, which irony of all ironies, right? Because Brianna has now stayed in the same place as her parents when they were on their honeymoon after the war. So Roger goes and talks to Mrs. Baird and finds this letter that Bree has left him with the instructions to Mrs. Baird that she can't send it for a year. I get Bree's purpose behind it because she doesn't want Roger to follow her because she wants to do it on her own. I think she's also fully intending to be back within a year if she's coming back and she can tell him everything to his face if she returns. Yeah, she didn't want Roger to follow her at all and whatever decision he makes is his, but whenever he reads that letter, he is very upset about it that she would just leave and go to the past First off, he's probably thinking she's stupid as shit for going to the past by herself after hearing all the stories of the mayhem and danger that her mother told. Like, you think it's going to be a safer place than the world that your mom left 20 years ago? Like, no, you're being stupid. Stop that. And then on top of that, that she would just go off and leave him without a word. That had to hurt as well. And so he's leaving this episode with the final words that Brie had in the letter, which says, you once told me to think of my mother living happily in the past, and that's how I want you to think of me. He is not okay with that. 
at all. I mean, who would be, right? If the person you loved most in the world decided to take off and go to the 18th century and not tell you and was like, oh, just think of me happily in the past. It'll be okay. I'm sorry, but I would be like, what the hell? Like, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? I, I'm going after you. You are coming back home with me. <laughs> um, so I totally get that moment of like when he just throws the letter down and rolls his eyes kind of and he has this look on his face like, oh, my God, are you serious right now? <laughs> uh, not going to lie. I was feeling that really deeply as Bree is narrating this letter. I was completely understanding where he was coming from. So then this episode leaves off with Bree going through the stones. And then the next episode, we do not see her. So we don't know what happened to her for at least another episode, uh, which I find extremely intriguing. So I'll be excited to talk about what transpires when that gets here in a few weeks. But until then, we have plenty of stuff to tide us over because the other thing that happened in this episode is the return of Myrta. And I know this is one of the largest controversies in the Outlander universe. So we're going to dig a little bit into how I feel about it, how others feel about it, because in the listener comments this week, there was... A ton of people commenting about what they thought about Myrta re-emerging in the Outlanderverse. We'll get right into it because my honest opinion on the reappearance of Myrta. I get that in the books, Myrta died at Culloden and that we don't really see anything more of him. I get that. I'm okay with how Diana did it in the books. It didn't upset me. It actually fit really well, in my opinion, with how she was writing things. Because when Culloden happened in the books, it was very much a severance of everything that Jamie knew from his early years. And it was all just cut. And he started fresh because he was literally the only thing in his life besides Jenny and her family that existed post Culloden. Everybody else died. And so he didn't have those tethers. And I think this is a repercussion that, however intentional, doesn't necessarily work in the grand scheme of the television show. Now, for people that are only TV watchers, they love that Myrta is still in the show. Duncan LaCroix does a fantastic job. I am not saying anything against his performance. I understand why the powers that be kept Myrta in the series. In fact, there is a big part of me that can fully appreciate it. And actually, I enjoy it quite a bit. The only time that I get upset about Myrta still existing is when it comes at the price of another character's development, which is I think we see that pretty regularly in season four and season five with the reappearance of Myrta, they have given him time that normally would have been dedicated to other characters like Brianna and Roger and young Ian. So we don't have the bond to those three characters that we would have had, had that time not been dedicated to an already established character that they were bringing back into the fold. So I think as we get into season five, we're not having things hitting us the same way that we should. We're not attached to these newer characters the way that we should be. 
which I think in turn is a detriment to how we understand things moving forward with this show. It's nothing against Murta's character. I love Murta's character. And this episode is one of my favorites of season four because I thoroughly enjoy all of the reunion scenes and the emotion that goes along with that. I love the complexity that Murta being around adds to Jamie's character in the series. But, like I said, it comes at the price of Jamie being attached to other characters and appreciating them and using them as his sounding board and his right-hand man. And I think that, honestly, Roger is the one that his character has sacrificed the most because Murta has taken quite a few scenes from Roger. Before I really got into breaking down all of these scenes in this episode, I wanted to kind of give you my reasoning for the way that I do feel sometimes. And 90% of the time, I can fully 100% lose myself in the show and be okay with it. And that's where I am with this episode. I don't feel like we lost that much in translation for this episode. And in fact, I think it added a lot to the episode um, because there was so much history there between these characters. And it's always good to see somebody like Murta come back into the fold. Murta's reintroduction into the show was absolutely fabulous. Duncan Lacroix has such an iconic accent and voice as Murta that before we even saw his face, I knew who it was knew who it was. It was so fantastic. And I really loved the idea that Ian is the first of the cast to meet him. He has no idea who this guy is and is just calling him an old coot and a tough blacksmith and all of this. And I I find it so great that he has an unadulterated opinion on this guy. He doesn't have anything clouding his judgment of this man's behavior. And whenever he gets out to the wagon and he puts the bit back on and Jamie comes around the corner and they get on the wagon and they're heading back home and he says, oh, I had to pay 15 additional shillings for this bit. And Jamie's nostrils just flare and his hands tighten on the rein and you can tell he's about to lose his shit. (laughs) So fast forward to the blacksmith shop and he's just screaming at Murta. And Murta just pauses and doesn't turn around, but he, he knows, he knows that voice. And Jamie's just livid. He's like, blacksmith, answer me. (laughs) And then all the anger just melts away when Murta turns around and it's just straight up awe. Because these, this is basically a father and a son reuniting after 10 years apart. They didn't know if they would ever see each other again. It is a chill-inducing moment. I love the music. I love the emotions radiating off of these two characters and these two actors did a phenomenal job. The tears in Sam Hewen's eyes are fantastic. I was watching um, one of those reels of the top 10 best reunions on Outlander and I think the Jamie and Murtaugh one made either number two or number three on the list of 10 and I can easily see why because it really is an amazing scene but quite frankly the better of the two scenes I think was 
in the tavern when Jamie and Ian and Myrta are discussing everything. Because one of my favorite lines of the episode was at the end of the forge scene when Jamie says, I have so much to tell you. And Myrta says, and I want to hear every word. Like, I would sit there with you for days and have you tell me every second of every moment of everything that has happened in your life since we parted. It is that kind of dedication. They have missed each other that much that they could literally sit in that tavern and talk for hours. And it would feel like no time at all has passed. So fast forward to the tavern and we get some interesting revelations going on because we find out that Murta had his indenture sold to the blacksmith and that he mastered all order of smithery. Well, then Jamie's like, oh, so I have something that I need made out of silver. Could you do that? And Ian's like, oh, yeah, it's a surprise for his wife. Like, he's just acting like he's all in the know, you know, and he doesn't like Ian thinks he knows, but he doesn't really know, you know, (laughs) I feel like it's that scene in Friends, but they don't know that we know that they know that we know. (laughs) Anyway, Jamie's just like, why don't you go buy yourself another ale, lad? And like trying to get rid of him so that Jamie leans forward conspiratorially and says, Claire came back to me. And the look of shock and awe and complete and utter happiness on Murta's face. He's so happy for Jamie. So, so happy. It's really cute. Just so cute. And I'm glad that Murta had such a great reaction given how Ian and Jenny reacted. But the difference in that is that Murta knew everything. Merton knew the reason that Claire left. And so the second question out of his mouth is, and the Baron? And Jamie smiles and says, a daughter, Brianna. And he's so proud of her. He's so proud of the fact that he has a daughter that he can acknowledge. This is the first person besides Claire that he has been able to come out and say, I have a daughter and I'm so proud of her. She's at university. And women in the future are entitled to a great deal more than they are now. And Myrta looks at him and says, well, any daughter of yours will be a canny lass. Oh, God. (laughs) I just want to cry. It's so great. Jamie and Myrta, they're falling back into this very familiar relationship and pattern that they have. They've always faced everything together until they were separated at Ardsmere. And then it was around 10 years. It's been 10 years since they saw each other. So to see them kind of fall back into this familiar routine of Jamie confiding in Myrta about everything and Myrta very much being the father figure that offers advice and tells him how proud he is of him. Like that means something to Jamie. It means more than you could possibly know. So Jamie's like, he knows that Myrta has a life, but he's, he puts it out there. He's like, will you come back with us? To Fraser's Ridge, you know, we could really use a blacksmith. He says, well, with 10,000 acres. And Myrta is like, well, Governor Tryon must think highly of you then. And this is where we start to see the divide. You know, Jamie's like, I know he's not popular around here and it is what it is. He says, yes, he has dishonest tax collectors, but, you know, that shouldn't be a reason for people to give up 
Murta's basically like, boy, you have no idea. In short order, Murta brings Jamie to the regulator meeting. I don't think Jamie necessarily had any clue whatsoever what he was getting into because he's kind of puzzled by what's going on, doesn't understand why all of these men are together, and I don't think that he would think that Murta would instigate any of this, that he would be kind of fueling the fire of all of these men's anger after what they've been through. But when Murta starts rallying these guys, feeding their anger and distrust of the crown, Jamie kind of looks at the floor and just like, oh, shit. Because Jamie has a pardon. For one of the first times in his life since the guy was 19 years old, he's not a wanted criminal. And he has just stepped in a massive pile of shit. If anybody were to tell Governor Tryon that he was at this meeting, he would have his land taken from him and he would be put in jail. This is when they start to realize that 10 years has made a huge difference in who both Jamie and Murta are. Murta has been hardened by his experience as an indentured servant and as a prisoner, and he's not going to sit down and take it anymore. Even if it costs him his life, he's willing to give his life to the cause of justice and freedom. And he's willing to lend his experience as an older man to these younger guys to help them get what they deserve. Jamie, on the other hand, He's spent 10 years out of the influence of other people. He's his own man. And now he has a family and land. He's given his word to the governor that he will help quell any unrest. So much like when they were in the tavern and Jamie leans forward and says, will you come to Fraser's Ridge with us? And Murta, he's so conflicted because you can tell he wants to fall back into that old pattern and he wants to be with Jamie and Claire and be comfortable, and live a simple life. But he's got other ties that are pulling him in a completely other direction. And we see that mirrored in the scene after the regulator meeting. Because Murta leans forward to Jamie and says, will you join us? And you can see the desire in Jamie to fight for justice and throw himself into it with everything that he's got, because that's who he is. But He has ties in other places as well. He has Claire and young Ian and his 10,000 acres of land that he promised Governor Tryon he would defend against the regulators. He has that holding him back. Where before, especially in seasons one and two, the strongest bond was between these two men and they were loyal to each other. Now they're more loyal to the ties that are holding them to other things. And after 10 years apart, it's not so much about Murta and Jamie anymore. I think that's what we see more and more as we develop. Like, yes, they would do anything to protect each other, but they're not going to fight each other's battles anymore. They still love each other. Do not get me wrong. And when Jamie says my quote of the episode, which is, I can't in good conscience involve myself in this. I won't join you but I will not try to stop you either. Jamie's standing up and saying, no, I have my own things to fight for right now, but I get that you do too, 
and that's fine. Jamie also says, I pray that one day you'll come find us. With this like half smile, he turns and walks away. And the camera lingers on Myrta. The look of dejection and desire to follow Jamie out that door and leave everything else behind. It's so clear on his face that if it were just about him and it was just his decision to make, he would go with Jamie and be with Claire and Ian and live a long and happy life. But this is bigger than him and he can't just walk away from it. So I love that that moment where it just lingered on his face because I thought that Duncan did a fantastic job in that scene, which quite honestly is why he got performance the episode for me because I just felt like he did a really good job of conveying how different Murta is now from the last time we saw him and how his priorities have changed, but how deep down he has the same tendencies and the same desire to take care of Jamie at all costs. And that's not something that ever goes away. His desire to make sure that Jamie is safe and happy. Whenever we get to the scene at the end of this episode where Myrta and Claire reunite, it just made it all that much sweeter because, yes, Myrta wants to be with Jamie, but also Myrta and Claire had a very strong bond that goes all the way back to the search. That's really when Myrta and Claire came together to form this bond over their love of Jamie and in the process became very good friends. And to find out that she is back and that he can see her again, it drove him to the ridge. It was absolutely perfect. So nostalgic when he walks up behind her and starts whistling the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Because it does have that callback to the search when their relationship first started and it's absolute gold. Um, I'm not sure who wrote this episode, but I felt like all the little callbacks to all of the little things throughout the the course of the first two seasons was absolutely epic for the reunion of this great Outlander fandom character with Jamie and Claire. It was just absolutely fantastic and I loved it. Alrighty guys, well that pretty much sums up what I have to say about 405 Savages, but before we close this episode out, I want to take a moment to read some of your responses to this week's episode. Casey Filson on Facebook says, I loved the return of Murta. He played a more active role in the show, and I always wondered what happened to him after season three. He brought some really great elements to the show and was the father figure in the Jamie and Claire family, which is just awesome to see. It really is because Jamie and Claire have both lost their parents, and they don't really have any influence that we can see in the show. And I think that Murta kind of fills that void for both Jamie and Claire, which I think is one of the reasons that we love him so much, if we're honest. He's just a great character. He's grumpy. He's gruff. But he also loves Jamie and Claire with a passion. And he would do anything for them. But he's also a great sounding board. And he gives fantastic advice. So I think that's part of what makes him so lovable. Mary Beth Palm on Facebook says, In my opinion, continuing with Myrta was a mistake. The time in a relationship with Jocasta could have included other scenes. Yeah, that's something that later on in this season, I was kind of like, I thought it was funny and like I understood why they did it in the season four finale. 
Um, but then in season five, as we continue on, it just took up too much time. Like it could have been dedicated to other characters. So I 100% agree with that, Mary. As far as whether it was a huge mistake, like I said earlier, whenever I was talking about the adaptational choice, I don't know that it was a huge mistake, especially if you're looking at it just from a show perspective. But um, they definitely did make mistakes over the course of the adaptation. And I think the more time they gave to him, the bigger the mistake became, I guess. I think it would have been easier to make Murta a secondary character like he was in seasons one and two and give him some time. And you're still going to have that emotional attachment to him that gives you the payoff we get in season five. But it's not going to take time away from other characters. I think when they tried to give him too much of a role in the show is when it became a mistake. Kelly Lee Riesinger says, I enjoyed the fact that they brought back Murta. He's such an integral part of the show. He always has Jamie's back no matter what and helps out Claire when she went to look for Jamie. I feel that's when Murta and Claire became close. Yeah, absolutely. Murta and Claire's relationship definitely was cemented in the search. And like I said, I love that they had that callback of the boogie woogie bugle boy uh, in this episode. Final comment of the day is from Joan Cohen. She says, I thought it was an inspired decision to bring back Murta. I bet there wasn't a dry eye when he and Jamie reunited, almost on par with the print shop reunion. His disapproval when he thinks Jamie has remarried and his reaction when he hears that Claire has returned is priceless. Murta's reappearance amps up the ambivalence Jamie feels over his decision to accept the land grant, which is a clever way to provide lots of conflict in future storylines. It makes sense that years of imprisonment and indenture have hardened and changed Murta enough that he is able to step out of the shadows and become a leader of men against the injustices they have all experienced. His impassioned speech to the men reminded me of Dougal when he was raising money for the Jacobites. There were some good callbacks. Murta mentions being tempted to sever the neck of the man he was indentured to, his whistling boogie-woogie bugle boy for Claire, another great reunion, and Baird's bed and breakfast when Roger is looking for Bree. I loved how Claire and Adewahi understand each other even without a common language, and I liked that the rabbit appeared when Claire was talking about Bree. I could really feel how much she missed Bree, which was even more poignant when she and Jamie talked about his dream. I enjoyed seeing Claire doing mundane chores, and there's a nice musical callback to Jamie starting an ordinary day and A. Malcolm. So fun to see the white sow and the hat, and I think I heard Clarence braying in the background. <laughs> yes, lots of good mentions of book stuff, especially the white sow and Clarence. They're really great. I do like that they included Adewahi in the beginning of this episode. It made it more powerful whenever Mueller showed up with her scalp and her little bead decoration there. Yeah, that was a good catch with Murta's speech reminding you a lot of Dougal's speech in season one whenever he was ramping up people to support the Jacobite cause. I also thought that that was very reminiscent of past seasons as well. One thing that I didn't catch, but I thought was really great, Joan, that you mentioned was the rabbit and how it reminds Claire of Brie. There's always a rabbit. Like think about the rabbit in um, the season three premiere on the battlefield of Culloden with Jamie and how Brie's favorite animal as a child was a rabbit. We get all of these little things that kind of bring Brie back into the story. 
And when Claire is sitting next to the stream cleaning herbs and stuff like that with Atawehi, if you watch on Netflix, you're not going to get the subtitles, but on the DVDs and on Stars, they do have the subtitles for uh, foreign languages like Gaelic or Cherokee in this instance. When Atawehi is asking Claire if she has any children, she says, yes, I have a daughter. And she kind of looks off into the distance and she says, she's here. And Claire is like, oh, yes, she's in my heart always. But to find out that Brie has actually gone back to the past and we find that out at the end of this episode, it's a nice little bookend for where this episode starts out that we find out that no, legit, Brie is actually in the past. I'm really wondering if that's what Adawehi meant, just because she does kind of seem to have these otherworldly abilities in a similar way to in the last episode, her granddaughter-in-law, I guess it would be, tells Claire, you should not trouble yourself. Death is sent from the gods. It will not be your fault. Like, don't blame yourself for what's about to happen. And Claire had no idea what she was talking about, but... Yeah, this is what she was talking about. And to see that all of that happened like months and months ago in the Outlander timeline, just nuts. Really nuts. So I am curious whether out of way he had other abilities, like not necessarily time traveling abilities, but possibly abilities similar to that of Jenny or Jamie's. So questions. I'm wondering, we'll probably never find out, but you know, that's how Outlander is, right? You answer a couple questions and you have five more. So <laughs> with that, I'm wrapping up for today. Thanks guys for bringing your input into it. I always like to hear what you guys have to say. Make sure you join me next week for 406 Blood of My Blood, one of my absolute favorite episodes of season four. It's so good and I'm so excited to talk to you guys about it. So with all of that, I'm going to sign off for the day. You guys have a great week and I will chat at you next time. Bye.